0: Because I have um, finished Jude, and most likely, the next book I'll be going into is Colossians, I would like you to turn to Jude one more time. And uh, there's one thing that I want to kind of preach about, and that is um, the passage of scripture in Jude, verse 21. where it says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. I really would like to um, springboard three messages from this passage of Scripture. This passage is the most remarkable, remarkable one and I believe one that needs to be understood and lived out because it is, in the context, a Christian's responsibility. So let me, let me take just a few moments to explain what this text does not mean. First, we are not told to keep ourselves in such a state as to make God love us. In other words, Christians are not called upon to bring themselves into a condition of life which will compel or constrain love of God toward us. And secondly, we are not called upon in our life as, a, as children of God to maintain a certain attitude in order to make God continue to love us. Not at all. It has nothing to do with that. See, we must rest upon the fact, that particular fact, that God's love is unsought, undeserved, unconditional, and we cannot, in this life, put ourselves outside the love of God. Of course, I am speaking to real, genuine believers. However far you may have drifted, wandered away from him at maybe a particular time in your life, wounded him, or grieved his Holy Spirit, you have not made him cease to love you. You may have forgotten him, but God has never ceased to love you, even when you forget him. So we must rest upon this fact and admit it until you do, then you can't move on. But when you do, then you may proceed. So what then did Jude mean when he said, keep yourselves in the love of God? Well, quite simply, he meant this. Being in the love of God means keep yourselves from all that is unlike him, from all that that which violates love and from all that which grieves the heart of God. So if indeed, according to Jude chapter 1, verse number 1, we are called of God, if indeed we are beloved of God, and if indeed we are kept for Jesus Christ, then to us this word applies. Keep yourselves in the love of God, which puts us in a sphere of personal responsibility. Being in his love, do not become careless, in other words. But remember that you are responsible. And the great and gracious facts, fact of the unsought, undeserved unconditional love of God into which you and I have been brought, actually specifically and specially brought, and we have been called to this, then we have a weighty responsibility. We live in a world in which we are surrounded by many seductive influences. We are in the love of God, and yet we live in an atmosphere in which Unless we learn the art of discernment and watchfulness, unless we discover our responsibility and fulfill it according to God's will, we shall wander. Not away from his love, for he will still love, but from the possibility of realization and manifestation of his love shed abroad in our hearts, which will be expressed in our personal life in holiness, in compassion, and in sacrificial service. See, God hasn't moved anywhere when you wander off. He's still there. He's still the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have changed. We have moved. And we have moved from our responsibility. So instead of the manifestations of the great the graces and the glories of the Christian character shining through our life as we walk with Christ, as we are being conformed more and more to the image of Christ, before we know it, if we don't stay there, these things will result, That these things are all all the result of his love, which really are, are, are full of beauty and according to the will of God, where God makes us into his image. If we don't stay Stay there, we will have lost our freshness because we did not keep ourselves in the love of God. And at that point is where the withering process begins. So, can a Christian fail in their responsibility to keep themselves in the love of God? Well, I fear the church of God is full of people who are not in the love of God. As to their own transformed thinking, as to their own obedient doing, as to their own sacrificial, or as to their own really character where they're, they have a, a sanctified being. In other words, they're not growing in the Lord. They have fallen, not out of his love, but from fellowship as it fulfills his will and manifests his purpose and accomplishes his work in the world. Now you say, what what am I speaking of? I'm speaking of the sad state of declining love in the life of a believer. This is one of the most dangerous places a Christian can be. Love turned cold. It is when there's no passion in, in our hearts anymore. No passion in our service. Just cold orthodoxy. Just going through the motions. Which is called In Scripture, hypocrisy. It was Jesus who diagnosed the hypocrisy of his day when he said to the ruling class of Israel, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you that this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's a state you and I do not want to be in. Can you imagine how it would feel if your husband or wife suddenly announced to you that they did not love you anymore, yet still planned to live with you and sleep with you? Nothing would change. That would be a horrible thing. And likewise... You would never dream of telling the Lord you didn't love him like you once did, but you still plan to come to church to serve, to sing, to give, to worship. So how can a Christian maintain responsibility to keep themselves in the love of God and not drift away or decline in love? Well, Jude already gave us some of the answers. He already said, listen, how do you do you do that? By building in the apostles' doctrine, and don't move from that, by praying in the Holy Spirit, by keeping yourselves in the love of God, and by waiting while you're waiting, doing the things the Lord wants you to do while you're waiting for him to come back. So to answer, though, the question we have to examine what declining love is and how it shows up in the life of the Christian. It's the most dangerous place a Christian can find themselves because declension in their love for God leads to some undeniable symptoms. say, what are those? Well, just let me throw some out generally. Number one is hiding from his presence. Like Adam in the garden. What did Adam do when he sinned? It says in Genesis 3, 8, the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. So what do we do? When we decline in love, we hide ourselves. We stay away from the things of God. We stay away from the people of God. That's what we do. We we don't necessarily do that always making a conscious decision to do it, but we're drifting slowly. That's one way you know you're drifting. Also, murky views of God's character when we start to drift. Like thinking and saying God is not fair. God is not just. And God is just far away and really is not concerned what happens in my personal life. Or they may conclude there must be a right way, uh, more ways to be right with God than Jesus. So they, presume, they start presuming incorrectly about God and his character. And it was in Jeremiah chapter 2 and in verse number 5, listen to what it says there. It says, Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? See, they conclude it wrong about the character of God, and therefore they, in that, it gives a symptom of someone drifting. Also, people begin to misrepresent God's dealing with them, his providential dealing with them in their daily life, that no person, the person really no longer relates to God as father like a father dealing with his children as such, but they begin to think of God as a judge and even as a tyrant. The person develops hard thoughts of God, hard thoughts of God's providential dealing with them, which really leads to what? It leads to questioning. It leads to murmuring. It leads to complaining. It leads to disputing with God. So they go from hiding to presuming incorrectly about God to questioning God. And they began to say, think also they start dwindling in their holy desire for him. We think God is, is pretty much like us, so we can live any way we want because God loves me anyway. And people become worldly at that point, self-centered and sloppy in their Christian walk. Now, did you ever examine your Christian life and think to yourself, I'm not doing so well? Instead of going forward, it feels like I'm going backward. The King James Bible and the New King James calls that condition backsliding. It is a condition that happens. It can happen to any born-again believer at it, at any time. It is a con- condition that involves the gradual movement away from him. And it's a condition that is often undetected by the one it's happening to. But one needs to really be careful about what it, what is meant by the term backsliding or backsliding. Uh, or to backslide or or backsliding. The definition uh, of the word means to move backward. You or others have used the term backslide in this way. I think so and so is backsliding. We all have done that, right? So we usually mean, what we usually mean is that someone has gotten away from the things of the Lord and that they are not doing what they once did. Now, there are generally three causes of backsliding and or falling out of fellowship with the Lord. It, 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 back in, um, in the Old Testament, in Psalm, verse 26, the psalmist said this, and the old King James Bible says it this way, Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, that means I have been obedient, and I have trusted also the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. Now, the New American Standard Bible translates that word, I shall not slide, to being faithless. In other places, to being stubborn. In other places, apostasy. So the three causes of backsliding would be lack of faith, not trusting in the object of our faith, our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, disobedience, not maintaining integrity in our Christian walk, and then a third one is uncultivated love, not keeping yourselves in the love of God. Sometimes the word speaks of backsliding as an action of an unregenerate person who just turns stubbornly away from what they hear of God. When used in that way in scripture, the word cannot be used to describe true Christians. So can a Christian backslide? Certainly. True Christians can backslide. If by that it means that they can regress into a period of spiritual dullness or disobedience or declining love, yes. If that occurs, though, if they backslide, they will incur God's fatherly discipline. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, that God the Father, if you are his child, will come and discipline you. In fact, it it tells us right there in Hebrews, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. God deals with us as children. And then it goes on to say, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. So somewhere down the line, we have drifted away from the holy walk, the walk of godliness. And God says, sorry, my kids are not going to drift away from me to the point where I'm going to reel them back in. And God does that through discipline. So if you're really a child of God, you'll definitely will be disciplined. And of course, Hebrews tells us also in verse number 8, if they backslide and are not disciplined, then they are not true children, children of God. For it says this, but if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. But if you think of backsliding as a perpetual state of willful rebellion or ungodly indifference on the part of one who professes faith in Christ but does not love him. That is a sign of a false profession. Sometime the term backslider is used to describe one who has forsaken Christ and abandoned the faith. In that case, it describes a person who was never truly saved. Other times, true believers are set to backslide. And all believers go through times when they do not grow or are set back in their growth by sin. And they seem to be sliding backward like a calf on a muddy slope. In that sense, The word could apply to true believers, but it cannot be used to support the notion that true Christians might abandon the faith completely. Why? Because God's keeping you. He's keeping you for Jesus Christ. He's keeping you because you have been God's promise to his Son. Now, saying all that, let's move to a scriptural example Uh, and the gradual movement away from fellowship with the Lord that can be observed in Peter's subtle downward movement away from the Lord. So let's take notice uh, this morning, and let's take our Bibles now and turn to Matthew chapter 16. Let's take notice of really five, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each one, I just want to give you the sense of moving away from the Lord by different things that are going on, different circumstances that can arise in your life that can cause you to move away from the Lord and specifically this, that of declining love. And we would do well to notice these five downward movements and put them up against our own life so that we may be rescued from backsliding and declining love. In Matthew chapter 16, the first thing we see happening to Peter is that he begins to berate the Lord's wisdom. Now, in verse 16, 16, Peter just made the grand divine announcement in verse number 16, where he said, You are the Christ. The son of the living God, that was an awesome proclamation by Peter. And then Jesus pronounced to Peter right after that, that his method of accomplishing building the church, God's plan for building the church, in other words, would include suffering, being killed, and being raised from the dead. Now look at verse 21 of Matthew 16. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised from the dead the third day. There's the pronouncement. But Peter is still not grasping the need for the Messiah to die. And because of this, a gradual, almost undetectable movement was happening where he was drifting away from the Lord already. A kind of heart backsliding was taking place. Peter was not ready. He was not mature enough for what is going to take place. Dangerous circumstances arose that exposed misunderstanding and human weakness, resulting in failure. So when Jesus began to talk about the cross, Peter began to be puzzled and disappointed and even confused and even angry. He could not see how suffering could be the way to build the church. But look at Matthew 16 and look at verse 22. What did Peter do? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you, verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Now, this is the first step in backsliding, that he dismissed the method of the cross because he did not comprehend it or connect the dots he was concerned more about, in other words, possibly thinking this, we'll come up with another way, Lord, because we need to scrap this messy plan. That's, that's who Peter was. He was a visionary. He was a leader. And, but you know what? That's not going to cut it if you're going to continue to walk with the Lord. God has to readjust all those things in our personality and in our circumstances to direct us and mature us in a way where we do not fall out of love of the Lord Jesus Christ. So asking questions like he began to do is part of how we learn. But there's a time when asking questions is sinful because it doubts God's wisdom. And we're just we're a, we're a lot like we're a lot like Peter in this process. That's why it's in Scripture that we can glean these things from these passages. He just foolishly wanted to try to find another way. There's got to be another way to to do this. There was no other way, and that's that's where the humbling comes in. This is God's will. This is God's way, and the human being doesn't want to do it God's way. They wanted to do it their way. They always got a better way. No, God's got the best way. But you don't always get that right away. Just when you talk about the doctrine of election, that's not an easy subject. You don't always get that right away. But it's in Scripture, and it is God's plan. So that's the first thing. The second thing is Peter began to boast. This, This is where his pride wells up and possibly his leadership ability to want to lead and and blaze the trail. And and, uh, let's turn over to Mark for this one, Mark 14, verse 27. He begins to boast against the Lord's wisdom. And as you're turning there, Jesus told his disciples that they will be offended and fall away from him because of his suffering and death. But Peter boasted, even if everyone falls away, he says, I will not. I will remain loyal. Look at verse number 27 of Mark chapter 14. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. In verse 28, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you, To Galilee, but Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. In verse 31, and Peter kept saying, insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing. Why were they saying the same thing, all of the disciples? Because Peter was the leader, and he was leading them down the wrong path. He was boasting, but again, the boasting part of it shows that he was already moving away from the Lord. He questioned the master's knowledge about himself. You do not know me, although you think you do, Peter. And in verse number 30, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, This very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So he foolishly depended on his own strength, his own knowledge, his own understanding, and totally disregarded what the Lord was saying. Do we understand better than Jesus? No. Who does understand better than, well, at least who who understands when Jesus does give the truth? It's going to be this person, the person who's fearfully trembling. They are the ones who have no confidence in the flesh and do not want to grieve their Lord. They're the ones who stay close to Jesus. But you say, that doesn't look like someone who's strong and mighty and blazing a trail. No, but that is a growing, maturing disciple. That God takes us and he moves us to the place where we are beginning to see what he has done and what he wants us to do. But this path that Peter's on, he continues continues to go down this path and it leads to the next thing. In Mark chapter 14, verse 37 and 38, he begins to decline devotionally. Look what it says in verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Again, he went away and praying said the same words in verse 40. Again, he came and found them sleeping. And then, of course, in verse 41, a third time he said to them, are you sleeping and resting? And then in verse number 37, where it says, Simon, could you not keep watch one hour? Keeping, Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he began to decline devotionally. And Christians, if we only could be diligent in the Area of watching and praying how much more we could get done for our Lord if only we set our face toward Jesus more often in seeking him in prayer, not only privately but corporately. But the person who spends little time watching and praying has already begun to live independently of God and have already begun to decline devotionally with God. And usually a lack of spiritual devotion to the Lord is replaced by other things like activities, doing things you or others like the culture or yourself like to do. And then you just push it aside. So declining devotionally leads to a lack of watching and praying. And then also a decline devotionally leads to depending on earthly wisdom to get things done. Again, you're depending on yourself. You're not depending on the Lord or his word or his will or his wisdom. In Luke 14, verse 47, when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter took up a sword and cut off the ear of Malchus with the sword. In verse 47, verse uh, it, it says in Luke excuse Luke 14, I'm moving out of Mark. Luke 1447. I just want you to listen at this point. It says in Luke 14, 47, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now we find out it was Peter who drew the sword, and in, in John chapter 18, verse number 10, it says, Simon Peter then having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear, his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So, in other words, he was taking things into his own hands, responding in a worldly fashion. So Jesus rebuked Peter, and it's recorded in Matthew 26, verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. So worldly and fleshly weapons... Will not be the instruments that win the war. The Lord Jesus Christ has taken up. It will be the cross. It will be His death. It will be His resurrection. And yes, it is messy, but it's God's will. So this step of backsliding usually follows backing off and following the Lord at a distance. Now, if you're still right there in Matthew or in Mark chapter 14 again, notice. This next downward step, following the Lord afar off, it says there in verse 54, Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers, warming himself by the fire. And of course, there's many other reasons why he's following at a distance, but he is, in in a way, getting as far away from Jesus as possible where he doesn't want to be noticed as a disciple of Jesus Christ which would lead to the next thing, and that is outward denying the Lord. And he didn't think he would ever get there, but that's where he's at. Look at Mark 14, verse 66. He verbally disowned Jesus not once, but three times. And each time, his denial is more insistent in breaking away from Jesus. Verse 66 to verse 68 of Mark His first denial, the servant girl comes of the high priest. She notices him in verse 66, and then he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out of the porch and the rooster crowed. And the second denial, verse 69 through 70, the servant girl again picks him out. This is the one she says in verse 70, but again he denied it, and after a little while, by the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. And then it leads to his third denial in verse 71, Mark 14. But he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man you are talking about. And the only way to convince the world that you're no longer in association in association with Jesus and his church is to act like them. And that's exactly what he does. Each one is worse. So Peter realizes how far he's fallen. And if you notice in verse 72 of Mark 14, it says, Immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. So, in in a way, this this is giving us a sense of how to get back, get out of backsliding and out of declining love. He remembered. What did he remember? He remembered what Jesus said. Secondly, he wept, giving a sign of repentance. And, of course, that means he did finally repent. So, when Peter was caught and confronted in his backsliding and disobedience by the Lord himself. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 21, because this is a very significant passage of Scripture. Because you would say that, what was his backsliding actually about? John... 21, verse 15, what was his backsliding actually about? So when Peter was caught by the Lord, his gracious Savior asked him only one question three times. What was the question? Do you love me? That's very interesting. Very interesting. Why does he say three times? To coincide with Peter's three denials. Three times Jesus questioned the soundness of Peter's love for him. And the dejected disciple answered that he did love the Lord. But I want you to notice the passage of Scripture. In verse 15 of John chapter 21, it says, So when they had finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me? So this becomes the most important thing for not only Peter, but our Lord. And it is always the most important thing. He uses uses the Greek word agapato here. That's the the highest kind of love. It's, It's the noblest kind of devotion it is a love of will not emotion or feelings it's a love that you choose to love and jesus says do you love me more than these in other words he is saying do you supremely love me more than anyone else or anything else even more than your own life do you love me that much Do you love me more than your plans, more than your desires, more than your pleasures? And what is, how does Peter respond? He says, he said to him, Lord, you know I love you. But he doesn't use the Greek word agapato. He uses the other Greek word phileo. We get the word Philadelphia from brotherly, friendly love. It is a a love as devotion based on emotions or tender affections. Maybe Peter was thinking, I have not reached the love that you're talking about. I have failed there. And then he says to him, tend my sheep," just reminding Peter, you're no longer a fisherman, Peter. You are the shepherd of God's sheep. And if you're going to be the shepherd of God's sheep, and I'm the chief shepherd, you must love me supremely, or what you are called to do will never get done. And then in verse 16 of John 21, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Or or verse 16, he said to him again the second time, Simon Son of Jonah, do you love me? Same word, agapao. And he said to him, Yes, Lord. You know I love you. And he said to him, Shepherd my sheep. And then in verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, what's interesting is that he does not use, Jesus does not use the Greek word agapao, but the same word Peter is using. That's interesting because Jesus is even questioning Peter's affection for him. It's not just the the act of the will, but it's actually being in love affectionately with Jesus Christ that he is the highest priority in your life. And of course, Peter says, Lord you know all things he didn't fight him this time he didn't question him this time he says you already know that Lord I know that I, I, know that I love you and Jesus said tend my sheep." so as was true for Peter the depth of our love for Christ must be demonstrated by our obedience The test of love is not emotion or sentiment. The ultimate proof is obedience. But I would say this, affectionate obedience. Willing obedience. I know my Lord. He is a good Lord. He is a good shepherd. And Lord, whatever you want me to do, I want to do it because I love you. And you don't say that. You could say that just in words when people use I love you just to say it. But... Words are always backed up by what? Deeds. So when the Lord is the priority in our lives, we will be willing to obey him and thus prove our love to him. But I say this right now, it's not easy. Because we're talking about a love that we have to mature in. And I believe that's the picture you get with Peter. He was not matured in this love yet, but he did become mature, and so do I. So do you know that loving the Lord Jesus Christ is what the Christian life is about? That's the distinguishing mark of the Christian. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what differentiates biblical Christianity from all the other religious systems. And this is what distinguishes true disciples from all other false followers of God. Just as Abraham's descendants thought in John chapter 8 that they were right with God merely because they were Jews and children of Abraham physically, while at the same time trying to make a plan to kill Jesus. And what does Jesus say to them in John 8, 42? Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. So how important and serious a matter is love to Jesus. Well, the Apostle Paul, in the final message in closing in 1 Corinthians, declared this. That souls doomed to judgment are cursed. For what reason? Well, look in your Bibles and look at 1 Corinthians sixteen twenty-two. This is a this is an, a, a, a baffling passage of scripture in the sense I understand what it says, but to wrap your mind around, I mean, he says this. He declared judgment and doom and people to be cursed for this reason. Look at it says in verse 22, chapter 16, verse 22 of 1 Corinthians. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Could you just wrap your mind around that for a minute? Anybody who doesn't love the Lord is accursed. Somebody could say they love the Lord. But see, the Lord's not looking for words. You know who he's looking for? He's looking for your heart and your obedience. That's why we persevere to the end, right? That doesn't mean we understand all the theology. It means that we are understanding God's word to obey him, and we keep going. Declining in love toward God is the forerunner of hypocrisy and spiritual apathy, which then leads to becoming immersed in the cares of the world, falling victim to the culture and turning to empty worldly pursuits that everybody else is good says is good but is not God's will. And that would naturally lead to compromise with evil, to corruption, to death and then finally to judgment. So there are are generally three precautions to backsliding. That means the way back from backsliding is this walking in integrity, that's obedience, trusting in the Lord, that's faith, and keeping in the love of God. You know what that is? Continuing to cultivate love for Christ. Every new plant if it is to bear fruit, must be cultivated. And it's here where we fail. And this is the tragedy of every backsliding Christian, for every Christian declining in love for Jesus. The tragedy of the despair that may be in your heart is not perhaps that you have no love for Jesus, because you have, because the Spirit of God put it there. If you still have the spirit of God, and if you're a believer, you have the spirit of God. The tragedy of, is this, love uncultivated. That's the tragedy. The tragedy of marriage, the marriage ties, being dissolved by separation or divorce, is a tragedy. Not necessarily of lovelessness, but of uncultivated love. It is not that a man and a woman did not really love each other. At the first, they did. They meant the world to each other. But the tragedy is that that love was seldom or never cultivated. And anyone who is married know that, hey, when you say I do on the altar, that's the beginning of it. I would say that's the immature love. The more mature love is when you begin to develop in your sanctifying process with your spouse and realize you have to give up your pride. You have to give up a lot of your selfishness, most of it. And you have to give up considering the other person and then cultivating that the rest of your marriage. And that's our responsibility. That's our responsibility. We don't want the tragedy of loves seldom cultivated in our Christian walk. So this is the tragedy of of every backsliding Christian, love for Christ uncultivated. And for The true believer, love is the valid test of the Christian faith, just as true doctrine is the foundation of life with God. Christian love is the natural outpouring and expression of faith in fellowship with God and his people. And if we learn the secret of cultivating the love of God in our hearts, then we shall be bearing, by his grace, the fruit of his spirit the maturity of the Christian walk. So are you cultivating your love for Jesus? Do you love him? Are you cultivating that love? Are you willing for him to use his pruning knife that he may aid in that cultivation? Are you willing to take up the responsibility to see the nourishment of that love in your own life? Or are you simply letting the plant go to seed and wither for want of regular attention? Because that's what it'll do. It'll wither. It'll drift. So are we doing things? Are we thinking things? Are we saying things that immediately create a barrier between your spirit and the lover of your soul? Or are you breaking down those barriers so that love continues to be cultivated? Of course, the desire is that we would all cultivate a loving, intimate friendship with our Lord. Who loved us enough to die for us, who loved us enough to rise again, defeat Satan and death, and we live one day to, for him to come back again. He did all of it for us. So, this virtue of love can only be displayed to the degree the Christians themselves are profoundly touched by the love, God's love in Christ Jesus. The gospel becomes the center. The Bible's display of the love of God for us is what has ignited our own love for him. And the sacrifice of God's own son on the cross is the fireplace where we warm our cold hearts towards God. We keep looking back to the gospel. You didn't deserve salvation. You weren't even looking for salvation most of the time. You were looking for something you wanted, but God reached out in his grace and his mercy, and he opened your eyes. He gave you life. He brought you to himself, and he saved you. So it is in the light of the marvelous facts of the gospel that we ask this question. How could we not love him back for what he's done? And if we cannot, then there's a possibility, as Corinthians tells us, that we're not saved at all. And if there's no transformation or cultivation, and you don't care about that, you're religious maybe, but you're not saved. So this morning is is a time to really look at yourself. And not only that, for true Christians, if you've gotten to a place where you're pretty cold spiritually, we're going to be dealing with how to get back there. But I just want to remember. I just want you to remember what happened to Peter that he remembered, and then he wept because he's seen how far he moved away from Christ and he repented. And we know, of course, God used Peter in a great way right? because he matured. That's what we want. We're, we're We're not unlike Peter. We're just like him. He always stuck his foot in his mouth. He always said the wrong things at the wrong time until he matured in Christ. Amen? And he became one of the most significant apostles in the New Testament. So, Think about that, because next week I'm going to be looking at an Old Testament passage that displays hypocrisy, hypocrisy, and that hypocrisy is linked to declining love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God. It's awesome, Lord. And Lord, I I know that myself and others from time to time in our, our spiritual walk with you we have we have, we've gotten cold, and Lord, sometimes we didn't know to, know what to do when we got there. We just kind of felt like we're in a funk. We just didn't know which way to look. But Lord, let us remember and look towards You, back to Your Word, and just confess our sin in our heart that we've we've drifted from You and declined in love towards You. And Holy Spirit, because You shed abroad the love of God in our heart, it's still there but we have forgotten some things. Lord, remind us again so we can get back to fellowship with me, w- w- you, with you, Lord, with a heart that is warm and filled with the Spirit of God in which we have an intense desire to obey you. Do that, Lord, for us as a church. And, Lord, use your word in our life today to bring us to a place that we don't drift away. In Christ, I pray it. Amen.